0: swordplay nick lipscomb university is set to host the first christian transhumanist conference this week nick how would you like a body with the strength of 10
1: gorillas no thanks alex i've already got a body with the strength of 20 gorillas how about that all right you know what when it comes to a
0: gang of gorillas versus Nick Perez, my money's on Nick Perez every <laughs> single time.
1: This is Swordplay, and we are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, Preaching Minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California.
0: I'm Alex Flood, and I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On... I, pol- I apologize. I have a allergy attack this morning, so I'm extra nasally this morning. <laughs> You can turn down the treble in your stereo. Maybe that'll help.
1: (laughs) On this episode of Swordplay, 2 Timothy chapter 4. All right, and go back and read 2
0: Timothy chapter 4. Read the whole book of 2 Timothy, but we are wrapping it up today. So, Nick, what do we
1: have? Well, let's start with verse 1. Seems like a good place to start. Um, It's
0: a good idea. Verse 1, Paul gives a weighty charge to Timothy and... Why don't you break that down for us? How weighty
1: is this charge to Timothy? Well, the word itself, charge, is already pretty weighty in and of itself. It was used in secular literature to call gods and also men uh, to witness. Um, There's zeal. There's earnestness that's included in the word itself. But then you add on top of this the presence of God, the presence of Christ Jesus, mix in the fact that he's judge of the living and the dead. He's going to come again. That's his appearing. Uh, you mix in his rule and his reign. That's his kingdom. And, man, you get through all that, it's a heavy, heavy charge. It's serious stuff. What more could he call upon? There's. It's a short list, if there's anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, um, pulling out all the stops there. Yeah,
1: so he mentions the kingdom here, Alex. Um, is the kingdom yet future?
0: You know, you kind of get that idea from this verse, but we've been back and forth on this. And so in this verse, it seems future, but we still have a kingdom now. We've been transferred into the kingdom of light, transferred out of darkness into light. You get that from Colossians. So you're, you're going to be stuck with the already but not yet on this one. Mm-hmm. I like the way Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 through 13 sums it up. I think this is the best summary. It talks about after Jesus sits at the right hand of God, which he's done, he's ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, having made one sacrifice for sins for all time, waiting from that time onward for his enemies to be made his footstool. So that's that's what we're doing right now for 2000 years as we are subverting the world of darkness to become the footstool of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's waiting for. So they may kill Paul, they may kill Timothy, they may kill us, but every martyr becomes an immortal with a glorious heavenly body, and every enemy becomes the footstool. So that's what the kingdom was, that's what the kingdom is, and that is what the kingdom is to come. Nick, what are your thoughts?
1: No, that's that makes uh... Perfect sense. Um, And yet we still live with that tension um, of the now and not yet. Uh, It is interesting that this flows right into verse two, and it's connected to Paul. He's charging Timothy to preach the word. Alex, what does it mean to preach the word? Well, let's start with the word preach.
0: In the Greek, it's caruso, just means to preach or proclaim, but it's related to this word. Karuks. Karux uh, was an official spokesman or a herald. He was a mouthpiece for somebody important. So the use of the word Caruso here, it's in the it's a verb, it's in the a- aorist tense, aorist tense. Now that means it's a snapshot, but it's also in the imperative mood, so it's not gonna indicate time, so it's not about What's happened in the past is just these snapshots throughout Timothy's life. So Timothy's life is to be full of these snapshots of preaching and proclaiming truth about God's Word. And all of that truth is going to be rooted in the Scripture, which he grew up on, if you back up just a couple of verses. Now remember, this: there's no chapter division here when Paul's writing this. It's a continued thought from the end of chapter 3. So for Timothy and his life, there's not going to be a certain day, a certain time. A certain audience or a frequency in which he has these snapshots of preaching and proclaiming God's word. It's just going to be snapshots whenever. Whenever Timothy sees an opportunity, he's going to preach. It's going to be all-encompassing. It's going to be ministerial in his service. It's going to be pastoral in his care. It's going to be evangelistic in his outreach. It's going to be apologetic in his defense. It's going to be administrative in his oversight. It's going to be sacrificial in his giving. It's going to be laborious in his effort. Timothy is ready to take you to the arena of truth any time, any place, any day, any season, you name it. He'll be there. By the way, Nick, you don't have to be a part of the clergy or especially trained or especially proficient in speaking, though it's okay to look for those people who are. They are there to help you. We are a body. We work together. But if you can say these three little words... I would say you're more than sufficient to represent the kingdom and those three words are I trust Jesus. So that's my sermon for today Nick what do you think? <laughs>
1: yeah. And and so when it comes to trusting Jesus that's never out of season. I think that's why in the next phrase he says be ready in season out of season. That's um someone has said that's you preach it when they want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. So
0: and he says when they don't want to hear it it might be because the time has come. where they were will, uh, where they will not endure, sound doctrine. So, Nick, what is sound doctrine?
1: Well, obviously, that's hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Right? Boom, Yahtzee. All right, <laughs> you um, win. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that historically, that's kind of how we've broken this down, or how we've parsed this um, this phrase, sound doctrine, down as to. Um, trying to boil it down to some kind of formulaic expression or statement that you can put on on the tips of your fingers right you got five fingers or your five steps of salvation doesn't have to just be the doctrine of salvation it Can be anything but we saw back in chapter 1 and verse 13 where paul talked about the the pattern of sound words and right. kind of riffed on it there uh, as well but um, again th- Paul probably doesn't have a formulaic view of things Uh, like this is sometimes boiled down to as some of our well-intentioned brethren tend to hold uh, in these matters. Sound, the word itself, sound, is actually a word uh, from which we get our English word hygiene from, and it just means healthy. So this is doctrine... Which has to do with teachings so was teaching that promotes Christian health, Christian vitality, um, life with Christ. Uh, it's going to produce um, uh, a healthy life with Christ. Um, he may have some key tenets in mind. I mean, we've we've dealt mm-hmm. a lot with different different things that have cropped up in Second Timothy, also First Timothy, where he mentioned so-called knowledge. He may. Uh, have some opponents in mind, like he's talked about um, uh, Hymenaeus and guys like that. Um, but bottom line is there's teaching which can be gangrenous. We've seen that in previous episodes. Right. He's talking here about the healthy stuff, the stuff that's going to promote vitality in Christ. Um, what do you say?
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it makes sense, especially since... Paul does not uh, unfold his systematic systematic theology here in this chapter or in this book or in any one letter. So he's writing to address the problems and issues in which uh, his audience is facing. So yeah, I think that makes sense. It makes me wonder too, this uh, language about hygiene and uh, gangrene and infectious disease. Maybe Paul's been hanging out with the good physician, Luke, a little too much. (laughs) So he's getting down to this End of his years, and he's starting to pick up Luke's vocabulary
1: well, uh I guess in contrast with the sound teaching is uh, verse four when people turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths um, what myths Alex would people turn to? Is this something we've seen before by the way?
0: yeah, I think so. We got our podcast on Titus chapter one verse te- verse one uh, chapter one, verse fourteen. Where he mentions the same idea, these myths, these Jewish fables, first uh, Timothy chapter one verse four gives you the same idea. so when we heard when we hear the word myth, we typically typically think of uh, like Zeus and things like that uh, I don't think that's what Paul is referring to. I think Paul is referring to things that uh unbelieving Jews were coming up with to undermine the uh the the status of Christ, what who he is and what he has done. So when our uh, Titus podcast came along, we mentioned one possible myth that would have been floating around that still floats around today, by the way. Hmm. And it's the myth that Melchizedek is Shem, the son of Noah. So why would that be important at all? You go back to the book of Hebrews, you'll see that Melchizedek is very important when establishing the priesthood of Christ, because Christ is our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So when you turn Melchizedek into Shem, what that does is it makes the Levitical priesthood by the order of Melchizedek, because Shem is the forefather of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the father of the 12 tribes, which was chosen out of those tribes, Levi, the Levitical priesthood. So if you make Melchizedek Shem, then what you essentially do is you say, no, no, Melchizedek is in the same order as the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is a Judahite, not a Levite. Therefore, Jesus cannot be in the order of Melchizedek. And so it undermines the distinct difference between the Levitical priesthood and what it means to be in the order of Melchizedek. So it makes that uh, order of Melchizedek thing nothing more special than the Levitical priesthood, which is, they're the descendants of Shem. And if Shem's Melchizedek, boom, there you go. So that's still used by unbelieving Jews today as well. And they had to change the genealogies in order to make Shem live long enough to get to the days of Abraham. So if you look at the Masoretic text, which is what all of our Old Testament English translations are based off of today, and you line up genealogies and how long people lived, you'll notice that Shem like outlives the next seven or eight generations beyond him. And he's still living until Abraham. So that just doesn't make sense. That's probably one of the myths that was coming about. And it could have been other things like that, but that's just one that we we put a link to a video that does a good job at illustrating this, if you go back to that podcast in Titus chapter 1. So Nick, do, what, do you have any thoughts on the myths?
1: No, I think you've upholstered the subject very well. Yeah, that was a good, good recap. All right. Uh, and I guess the only thing I would add is um, when you compare the genealogical record in the Masoretic text with... The Septuagint text, um, as well as other um, uh, ancient manuscripts, the Samaritan uh, Pentateuch, exa- in other languages, exactly. Um, you, the contrast is striking. They they struck a hundred years off of the Hebrew text, um, but these other older manuscripts, in these other languages, they preserve. Um, I believe, what seems to be the the accurate reading there. Well, um, so what should Timothy do? Verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded. Um, I believe yours talks about being sober in all things. Um, so how do we do that? How How is one sober in all things or always sober-minded?
0: I think what immediately comes to mind when we hear the word sober is we're thinking about somebody trying to Uh, not drink alcohol. You're trying to stay sober for uh, an extended period of time. The idea of the original language is to be self-controlled. It's to be well-balanced. So it's a good word to use when applying it to alcohol. But here it's more encompassing than that. Paul says Timothy should be in a state of mind uh, in all things, that he's self-controlled, that he's well-balanced. It's all encompassing. He needs to be sober in life, in mind body and soul so it is true if you engage in an activity that's destructive to your state of mind it affects your life and the self-control you would otherwise exercise it's not specific to drugs and alcohol i guess is what i'm saying but i do believe it would encompass such things under its umbrella under the term and the broadness of one's life in which one is to be sober in all things And I think that this is going to be a topic we'll have to come back to uh, again because you got more and more states uh, legalizing marijuana for recreational use, right? Yeah. And um, you have the uh, Christian side of the argument over the decades that you can drink alcohol but in moderation. And so if marijuana becomes legal in all states for recreation – Is is that same group of Christians, are they also going to say that you can smoke marijuana in moderation? What if more drugs become legal? What if all drugs become legal? There are some parts of the world in which that's true. Will the Christian argument of moderation hold up for any and all drugs if they're all legal? And I think that's something we haven't thought through yet. So might have to come back to it and see why the broadness of the term and use of uh, sober would apply and be important for our modern-day contemporary issues in theology. Nick, what are
1: your thoughts? Well, it's, and that's why I like the NIV, uh, the NIV's rendering for this, which says, Keep your head in all situations. <laughs> um, and uh, it's also interesting to note that this is a present tense command uh, from Paul to Timothy. This indicates that this is something that Timothy was to keep on doing it was uh, supposed to be continuous um you connect it back with what we just talked about in verse 4 about those myths you know as as all these uh heretical teachings are cropping up in uh, around Timothy he needs to be in a constant state of alertness and keep his head uh in in all those situations right. whenever the the heretical teachings come up you know And this is especially applicable for today you know there's so many um there's so many trendy religious innovations that people just go racing off after and uh, when they've gone after them uh, what they usually end up with is something that uh, is empty it's void of any significance Timothy had the same thing in his day and he was supposed to be composed he was supposed to be self-possessed um and and as you mentioned the self-controlled aspect as well uh, and i think that's instructive for us today as we don't just go running off after the latest um uh, the latest myths of our day uh, but instead we as John instructs in 1st John chapter 4 we test the spirits to see whether they are from god so uh, you're right. This is a powerful principle that uh, expands and touches all aspects of our lives um, and is certainly something that's worth returning to in the future. That's right.
0: Well, Nick, moving on, it says that Paul's ready to be poured out like a drink offering. What does it mean to be poured out like a drink offering? What is that?
1: Well, he's he's about to die, I think, is is what it boils down to. And He's hinted at this throughout the epistle. The whole thing reads like a last lecture from the teacher to the pupil. Right. Um, there's that suffering motif that uh, you can trace throughout this epistle. Also, you got all that last day's talk, 3 verse 1 is an example of that. Uh, but drink offerings, uh, they were a part of the ritual of the law of Moses. Uh, Daily, the priests would offer a quarter of a hen of some strong drink, and they poured that out in the holy place before the Lord. And so that seems to be the the imagery that Paul is using here to talk about his life being poured out as a drink offering. Um, He's dying. That seems to be the bottom line. Uh, You say?
0: Yeah, I agree that Old Testament imagery of the sacrificial system, images from that system are repurposed and uh, used in the Christian uh, language that we see in the New Testament about being that living sacrifice, uh, being poured out like a drink offering, uh, offering up through our giving to each other a pleasing aroma before the face of our lord all of this has uh, deep roots in the old testament sacrificial system and the only thing i would add is that the the drink offering in the old testament uh, the significance of that is that the entire cup was poured out the drink offering was never to be sipped or drank in any part by the worshiper or the priest it was completely poured out to the lord because that's part of its symbolic, rich uh, meaning is that you yourself are willing to be completely poured out, wholly devoted and given over to the Lord and what he has given you and, and who you are. Well, Nick, how do we love the appearing of Jesus? This is verse 8 and it kind of harkens back to verse 1. What is this appearing of Jesus? Uh, how do you love it? Is it past present what do we do with this
1: yeah so um the the word here for love it's a familiar one to most people although it's in the verb form here people are usually familiar with uh, the term agape Uh, they had different words for love just uh uh, uh, well, I was going to say just as we do, but we really don't. Um, yeah. <laughs> we we can love everything. and um, But they did have that distinction. And so here is love. It's a verb. It's uh, what's called a perfect tense. That just means past completed action with present continuing results. In other words, they have loved and they continue to love. Or long for—that is the appearance of Jesus—and I believe that's language for his final coming when he comes back. So, um, so what does that mean, right? To to long for to love his appearance. Does that mean that they just went around and only talked about the final coming? Uh, did that mean that the preachers were only preaching the final coming? Uh, were they getting caught up in these lahaye esque theories? Uh, caught they, up, I see what you did there. Yeah, Yeah. nice, right? <laughs> uh, were they uh, only talking about the millennial reign, only preaching from Revelation? Um, it's probably more like what we saw in Titus chapter 2, um, where we are told to uh, wait, as we wait for Jesus to come back, we live this lifestyle, we live the Christian ethic of self-control and that seems to be the word of the day, uh, is self-control, godliness, holiness, and the rest of it. Um, Loving his appearance means that we first love him, and therefore, we are willing to live for him. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It seems to me that there could even be two appearing uh, things going on here. His first appearing, and then the appearing of his return that we look forward to. Uh And whether then or now, we love him, and we look forward to it. Nick, you said um, we only have one word for love, and they had more than one word for love. But let me ask you this. Did they have emojis?
1: I don't think they they
0: did. They might agape the appearing of Jesus, but can they winky face the appearing of Jesus?
1: (laughs) They had, well, there were some languages that were were picked. Can they thumbs
0: up the, the appearing of Jesus?
1: No, they can't. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Can they make the thumbs up uh uh you know racially politically correct by making sure it's a white thumbs up or a black thumbs up <laughs> or a, a yellow thumbs up I don't think they had that So type. really we we have better stuff we have better communication emojis okay So what does it mean for Demas to love there's agape there's love again this present world Uh, That's interesting how he mentions that loving uh, back-to-back there.
1: Yeah, this is verse 10, talking about this guy named Demas, and it sounds like Demas, um, he loved worldly values. He loved worldly morals. That's kind of how this reads here. Um, Or, and to stick with the overarching theme of suffering, maybe love for the world is Demas just preferred ease and safety. He preferred peace and comfort over and against suffering. Um, So maybe Demas, he was reluctant to imitate the example of Paul, who is the example of suffering for us. Um, There is an account. It's a a tradition from a New Testament pseudepigrapha. Uh, The book is called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And it recounts a little narrative where Demas is involved, also Hermogenes. Uh, They go and see Onesiphorus, and Onesiphorus greets Paul, but he doesn't greet Demas and Hermogenes, and they're offended. They're just like, what are you doing saying what's up to him but not to us? You dogging us? And Onesiphorus is like, bro. He didn't call him bro because he's like, I don't see any goodness in you guys. (laughs) Um, and so Demas and Hermogenes, they're jealous, they're envious of Paul. And he ends up deserting Paul for a bribe, straight cash, homie. And <laughs> with Hermogenes, That's right. And with Hermogenes, uh, he actually urges that Paul should be arrested for teaching Christianity. Meanwhile, Demas, uh, he teaches that the resurrection has already happened. Uh, all this is tradition. It's from a document that was written probably mid-2nd century at the earliest. So take it as you will.
0: Yeah, that's still pretty Um, early, though.
1: It is, Yeah. yeah. There is, though, on the other hand, this other tradition that says that Demas, and his name is short for Demetrius, Demas is the same Demetrius who's mentioned by John in 3 John chapter 12, and there he's being commended, and so did he hear the apostolic admonition to not love the world, and then repented. Is that could it be that years later Demas repented and he was restored uh, uh, for his love for Christ? Um, it's hard possible, to say. Yeah. It's possible, but it's, it's it's hard to to say definitively.
0: It would fit the timeline because. John, uh, traditionally ends up living a lot longer than Paul. Right. So that would put his, uh, epistles possibly much later than this one. So yeah, that's interesting to, to go back through and to see that these are real people, real places, real times, and to sort of put it back together and to see what we have. Well, Nick, it says that Demas deserted him, but then it goes on to mention, uh, Crescens and Titus. And it says they, Crescens went to Galatia, Titus went to Dalmatia. Is this sort of in one fell swoop, saying that all these people deserted him? Is this saying Titus also deserted him?
1: I suppose it's possible, but I don't think so. You remember, um, I don't think we covered it, but in Titus 3, verse 12, we didn't talk about it in other words, but it's there, Titus 3, verse 12, Paul told Titus to meet him in Nicopolis. And Dalmatia uh, was just north of um, Nicopolis. So it could be that after he met with Paul, it was just a quick jaunt up to Nicopolis. Uh, No, I think I got that wrong. Um, To Dalmatia. Yeah, that's right. So after Nicopolis, they made the quick. He makes the quick jaunt up to Dalmatia. So that could be what's going on there. And it just—it's just Paul not speaking a word of uh, condemnation, or anything like that against Titus. Just stating the fact that, hey, I'm all alone here except for Luke. It's verse eleven. But uh, because—and this is why, right? Demas—he's—he's he's a deserter. Crescens, Titus—they've gone their different ways. They're doing good work, good ministry elsewhere, and. So he's just kind of left alone. Sure, does that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think so, and it may even be the way that it's paragraphed in my Bible, where it kind of makes it look like this is one topic, and then it moves on to another topic. So it was throwing me off a little bit there. I was like, "Wait a second, are there all these
1: people deserting him?" But and and it is, you know, um, it's the closing of a letter, and Paul is kind of just doing quick hit bullet points, and he, he does that a lot. And so he's just cramming a bunch of stuff in here, you know, get my books. Oh, did I mention Alexander the coppersmith? Hey, um, bring me my cloak. All that stuff is just getting tossed in here at the end. So that could be what's happening too. Yeah, that makes sense. And Paul really does, he lists off a lot of people
0: here. Uh, even chapter 1, 2, and 3, you hear him name people by name. And then chapter 4, the very end, you get lots of names. One of them is uh, Mark. And is this John Mark? I mean, what's significant about verse 11?
1: yeah I think this is John Mark um and when you dig back into the history of this, Mark had previously been useless to Paul because he had deserted Paul and Barnabas' min- uh, missionary team back in Acts chapter fourteen and verse thirteen it says that John returned back to Jerusalem, and paul he straight calls that an abandonment when you get to fifteen verse thirty eight the word therefore withdrawal literally means he abandoned us and yeah Paul and Barnabas are talking about a second missionary trip. Barnabas wants to take John Mark, but Paul doesn't. And they have this sharp disagreement between the two of them. They end up going their separate ways. And you're like, "Whoa, man, that's awful. John Mark, he broke up the power team of Paul (laughs) and Barnabas. But wait. (laughs) What happens is, is that Barnabas takes Mark, they form a new missionary team, and they go to Cyprus. Right. Paul ends up forming a new missionary team with Silas. They go to Syria and Cilicia. They meet Timothy and Lystra. They recruit him for the team. You actually end up with two brand new missionary teams that go separate directions, and they produce even more fruit than they could have probably together, just Paul and Barnabas sticking together. Uh, so what happens is, that was years ago, you get to Second Timothy, time seems to have healed the wound that Paul had experienced from John Mark's abandonment. And years later now, he sees John Mark as useful in the gospel. Wow. He mentions him in other letters, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Philemon, verse 24. John Mark goes on, he ends up writing a gospel, and so this little vignette is buried here just with that brief statement of get mark bring him with you he's useful to me for ministry just this powerful testimony to the grace of God and how the gospel if we allow it it can repair relationships it may take time but the spirit of Christ is able to help us be useful when maybe perhaps once we were useless or we were untrustworthy Again, if we allow the Spirit to work within us. So that's the significance there of John Mark. You want to toss in anything else there?
0: No, I think you covered it. I mean, if this really is the same Mark, then you do have kind of this full circle story of how even through disagreements and parting of ways, uh, Christ accomplishes great work through each uh, person in the church, and he, He works with us and we work with Him. I mean, it's amazing how God works these things out. Uh, Alexander the Coppersmith. This yeah. guy sounds like he should be um, a supervillain and like one of those ten cent comic books, like off brand <laughs> uh, bad guys. Who is Alexander the Coppersmith? It's like, ah, watch out for my copper! I'll get you. Yeah. <laughs> like, who is this guy?
1: Yeah, and and what did he do? Right? Because you're he is codified for all time as this bad guy here in sacred scripture. Um it could be, he could be the same guy from First Timothy one and verse twenty. If so, he'd rejected the faith. He was handed over to Satan as a disciplinary measure that he learned not to blaspheme. Um if it's the same guy, he hasn't learned his lesson, apparently, when you get to chap second uh, Timothy four here. Um could be someone different. Alexander was a common name then. Kind of like the Robert of our day or something. I don't know. Sure. um, In which case, we don't know exactly what he did. He just, Paul says he did great harm. And Paul says he hands him over as judged according to his works. Uh, That's a common theme in the Bible, by the way, that we are judged by our works Job thirty four eleven, Psalm sixty two twelve, Jeremiah seventeen ten. Then you jump to the New Testament, Mar- Matthew sixteen verse twenty seven. That's actually Jesus saying that. Romans two verse six, Revelation twenty verse twelve. It's a common theme that we are judged according to our deeds. Those what yeah, we do. It's pervasive. Yeah, what we do matters to God, and everything we do matters to God. Um, there is one interesting connection here I want to point out between verses eight and 14, okay. where um, it says, Paul talking about himself says, the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He's talking about the crown of righteousness. The word therefore, in fact, the phrase itself for award to me is identical to the phrase, though it doesn't show up like this this way in English, is exactly the same as the phrase, um, the Lord will repay him. The only difference there is the pronoun, which pronoun is used, is it first person or third person? But that's fascinating that Paul, talking about how he will be awarded, and that would be based on, he's going to be judged according to his works as well, but he'll receive an award, whereas um, for Alexander the coppersmith, the repayment, um, he's got a steep fee to pay, as it were, based on his deeds. Right. Um, everything we do matters. It's all significant, and we we can ne- we should never forget that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you caught uh, John chapter 5, where Jesus talks about the resurrection. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, deeds, works. You can't get away from it. It's pervasive. And uh, do you have to wrestle with that? And living by faith and saved by faith, of course. But I think uh, this idea of reward helps to make sense out of some of it, at least. You get a reward based off of what you do. Or you get a degree of punishment based off of what you do. You get repaid for your evil deeds. Uh, Nick, in Acts chapter 19, though, this was one thought I had. Mm-hmm. You know, when the riot breaks out uh, in, where was it, Eph- Ephesus, and they rush to the theater. Isn't that right? Yeah. And uh, let's see. Yeah, Acts 19. There's a guy who's brought out. So the guy who, who started the riot was Demetrius the silversmith, right?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And you said Demas was a short name for Demetrius. That's right. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know if that's the same Demetrius, but it says that they capture a guy who was a Jew named Alexander. That's right. And that was in verse 33. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander. since says the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians, so I wonder if that Alexander, because he's mentioned in the same breath as the uh, the other metal workers, the silversmith. Maybe that's Alexander the coppersmith, and maybe he uh, is that guy who did Paul so much harm because where is Timothy right now in this letter? Second Timothy. He's in Ephesus, right? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe Alexander the coppersmith is in Ephesus. Timothy's in Ephesus. Alexander brought harm to Paul. Paul's saying you keep an eye on that guy. You watch out for him. He might come back for you. I don't know. All these uh, loose strings. Gotta see which ones you can tie together. (laughs) Well, the next verse, Nick, Paul mentions his defense he says at my first defense no one supported me all deserted me but may it not be counted against them now is what first defense is this is this the defense um, way back at the end of the book of Acts or is this like a the first defense that he's made since coming back from uh, another journey is this related to the all in Asia deserting him in chapter 1 verse 15 what defense
1: is this? Yeah, so there, there are a couple options, few options here, I guess. Um, some point to Acts 23, uh, verses 1 through 11, where he stood before the Jewish council. There are others that point to, like, Acts 28, when he finally does get to Rome. <laughs> um, the new uh, American commentary on this verse talks about how... Um, There was a preliminary investigation that would take place um, during imprisonment, and the Latin legal language is the uh, prima actio, the first action. And it might be something similar to a grand jury hearing. And after this first investigation, the judge um, would have been unable, if he had been unable to resolve his doubts, for or against uh the um the defendant he would call for a further investigation that was actually the secunda actio um that could be what's going on here paul talking about his his first defense that would have been his prima actio and there was nobody there with him when he stood uh before the roman authority and so um that that again just a few options of what could be going on here when paul talks about his first defense sure um and and no one was there that's i think that's probably the, more the emphasis there is um he was he was deserted everyone deserted him and it's even more meaningful because this bleeds right over into verse 17 where he says but the lord stood by me and strengthened me um just that contrast there. It's important to remember, and this is how he's going to close the letter, the Lord be with your spirit. It just this final exhortation there is a reminder of what he had experienced himself, that even when he stood alone, he really didn't stand alone because the Lord was right there with him, strengthening him. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I mean, he even says, may it not be held against them. So he's big understanding Uh, sort of that uh, voice you hear from Christ himself when he's being crucified saying Lord uh, do not count this sin against them same thing with Stephen when he's being stoned looking up praying to the Lord Jesus saying Lord do not hold this sin against them Paul being tried probably moments before he's supposed to be executed saying Lord they've abandoned me but you haven't don't hold it against them He's got to care for the people. And I wonder, uh, maybe that was what Paul had in mind when he said in chapter 1, Jesus, or the Lord, is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Maybe that was the church, his present continuous concern for the church and their safety.
1: Well, that's going to bring us, I believe, to our tough text for today. Tough text. It's verse 17. How was the proclamation fully accomplished? He says that here in verse 17. Right. All the Gentiles might hear it. H- how in the world is that going to happen, Alex? Or how did it happen?
0: Sure. Well, I'm going to give you what I think is the best explanation. There's a couple of different ways you could go with this, but I'm going to give you what I think is the most um, theologically compelling and important So in Genesis 10, you get a list of people groups called the Table of Nations, and there's 70 names listed. And chapter 10, it precedes the story that we know as the Tower of Babel. So the Tower of Babel tells you how everyone was divided by language, And when they divide, you end up getting these 70 nations. So it gives you the nations before the story. And that's pretty typical of Genesis for it to sort of um, back out, give you a perspective, summary point, and then dive in and give you a more detailed story of how that happened. So the nations were what you could call disinherited at Babel. In other words, no nation at Babel was Yahweh's nation. Yahweh did not get a nation until Israel. That was his inheritance, his people. But the other people, you go to Deuteronomy, look at chapter 4, verse 19. It says that God gave all the other people, all the nations, over to worshiping the sun, moon, and the stars, and the heavenly host. And that's language for uh, divine, uh, supernatural uh, plurality. There's there's not more than one Yahweh. There's only one Yahweh. He's the creator. But all these other beings, it's what the New Testament calls the principalities and powers and dominions and thrones. These are the gods of the Old Testament that people went off and worshipped. So these nations, you have 70 of them, right? Well, there was this idea that there's this certain number of sons of God and the divine council of God and it's 70 and you go to Deuteronomy 32 verses 7 through 8 uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls will say that God divided the nations according to the number of the sons of God you go to the Septuagint it says according to the number of the angels of God so the number 70 seems to be important there and you get to the New Testament and Acts chapter 14, verse 16, and 17, verse 30, you get this idea that in times past, Yahweh overlooked what he called the times of ignorance. And it says he permitted, he permitted them, he permitted the nations to go their own way. That lines up with Deuteronomy, where it says he gave them over to worship those other gods. So the geographical disbursement of the table of nations from Genesis 10 if you were to map that out, it basically covers what was known as the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire overlaps the disbursement of those 70 nations. and So the spreading of the gospel to all of those nations would fulfill the reversing of Babel. The reversing of all the nations being disinherited to becoming God's inheritance. He wants to inherit all the nations. That's the last verse of Psalm 82, uh, rise up, O Lord, for you will inherit the nations, the great commission by Jesus. Go make disciples of all nations. Why? Because now I have authority in heaven and on earth, all authority. So go take it back. Make my enemies the footstool. So Paul probably accomplished this mission, the reversing of Babel, with his final journey, which he took to Spain. So upon his return trip from Spain, that's probably when we see Paul getting arrested and putting on trial, uh, leading to his death by beheading uh, under the command of Emperor Nero in the mid-60s. So I think Paul finished the task. I think that's part of what he says. I have finished the course. I've finished the race. I've, I did it. I did it. We reached it. We reversed the table of nations. So did every human on earth hear the gospel? I don't think so. But the origin points for all of humanity... Because all of humanity comes from these 70 nations, the table of nations, the origin points for those nations, it was covered. All of it. And that was the goal, was to reverse Babel, to take back the nations, and from those origin points, it would spread to the rest of humanity, who come from these 70 nations. So that is what would follow, and that's what still continues on today. So that's... uh, that's the explanation I think brings the most theological significance to this idea mentioned in other places, like where else uh, do you see this talk, Nick?
1: Yeah, so since you've given us the best, here comes the second rate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paul, he he uses this kind of language elsewhere in his epistles, Romans 1, verse 8, he talks about your faith is proclaimed in all the world, Colossians 1, verse 6, he says that... Um, Indeed, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit, the gospel that is, uh, and increasing. And then 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 8, uh, he talks about how uh, the faith of the Thessalonians was sounded forth in Macedonia, <clears throat> Achaia, but really it's gone forth everywhere. So all over the world, everywhere, the Christian faith has gone out, and uh, and I read these statements as um, kind of just what you were talking about there with the gospel's gone all over the known world all over uh, the Roman Empire that is And um, uh, but that's a good connection to the the table of nations there in the book of Genesis well it connects
0: to Acts chapter 2 as well because you see all the different Jews from every nation under heaven who are there and they hear Peter and the apostles preach the gospel um, I think part of why those nations are listed out is to sort of telegraph that this is the beginning. This is the reversing of the Tower of Babel. It's the bringing back of all nations into the kingdom of God uh, as one nation. Well, Nick, uh, verse 17, you hear this statement from Paul. It says, I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Now, is Paul really did he really have to face off with a lion?
1: Well, um, you know, there is another um, apocryphal story about Paul that some, uh, some think is based on either this verse or what he talks about over in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.32 where he fought the beasts at Ephesus some well-intentioned christian in the 2nd or 3rd century wrote an apocryphal story about paul and the lion and basically it shakes out that paul is put into the uh uh the amphitheater and thrown to the lions and this lion comes out and the lion can talk <laughs> and they have a conversation. And Paul is able to convert this lion. He actually baptizes the lion. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, look, it could be a literal expression. I mean, they did feed Christians to lions in the Roman Colosseum. Uh, It could be a figurative expression. Uh, He could be talking about Nero as a lion. Uh, could be a figurative expression for Satan. Peter does that in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He's a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It could be an allusion to the book of Daniel, um, as in Daniel in the lion's pit. Daniel chapter 6, verse 22. could be an allusion to Psalm 22, verse 21, where uh, the cry there is, Save me from the mouth of the lion. So you have a bunch of different options there. Um, hard to say exactly which one he has in mind, but you have a lot of good options there. What do you think, Alex? Uh like you said there's there's a lot
0: of possibilities and I guess we don't know for sure but I really like the idea that he did face off against a real lion. Uh yeah. <laughs> It just I don't Was it a talking lion? Uh not the talking <laughs> part though. Yeah, yeah. forget the <laughs> baptism part. And uh <laughs> I think yeah, let's say he did face off with a lion that like Daniel he was delivered. Mm. and what an annoyance Mm. this would be to the roman authorities right they must be thinking what do i have to do to kill this guy yeah so (laughs) (laughs) the wild animals wouldn't obey so what's left for paul yeah it's straight to the axe tradition Mm. holds that paul was beheaded so at a time when torture like crucifixion burning wild beasts being boiled in oil was the sort of go-to execution for christians uh, it seems strange that Paul was beheaded, uh, which would be a quick and less entertaining spectacle for the demented Romans. So perhaps this verse tells us why God wasn't going to let him be ripped apart by by lions. And that might have to do with uh, what Paul means when he says that he will arrive safely in the heavenly kingdom he's going to be martyred. What does a safe martyrdom look like, Paul, Uh, Nick?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Verse 18 there, bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, that safe martyrdom business. You know, Jesus promises in the Gospels that um, whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. I believe Paul was a firm believer in the promises of Jesus. And so Paul, his hope, was this glorious entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ. He was going to cross the finish line of life triumphantly. Um, He was confident, maybe not in physical deliverance, although it could have happened. A spiritual deliverance for sure was gonna come since Christ's kingdom isn't of this world. Um, he would be delivered from every spiritual force set against him, even if he had to leave this life in a body bag. And everybody does right. at some point or another. But he was going to be delivered from that. I think that that's probably a good way of looking at his safe martyrdom and what he was thinking as he was facing that.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's a good end to our uh, study on Second Timothy. So, Nick, what are your uh, concluding thoughts? What's the... What's the one thing you're taking away with you
1: today you know um <clears throat> i mentioned it earlier the last verse of this book the the lord be with your spirit grace be with all y'all because it's plural there <laughs> at the end um no matter what we go through no matter where we go no matter what happens to us the lord is with us he's with us in spirit he's given us his holy spirit um to live and to dwell within us. And even if we have to stand alone against the world, like Paul did, um, we're really not standing alone because the Lord is there with us. He will stand by us. He will rescue us from the lion's mouth. Um, he is still the righteous judge. He is still going to come back. He still is ruling and reigning over everything. Um, and as long as we keep a clear uh, a clear. Perspective on Christ, um, we will be rescued uh, come what may. What about you, Alex? What are you taking away?
0: Uh, I'm really I'm thinking about that footstool business in his kingdom. And, you know, this is a battle. So you might say Jesus has rule over all things, but there's still a battle unfolding in which his enemies must be made a footstool. So that's right. Yeah. That answers a lot to me uh, of where evil comes from in the world. Uh, you're going to have casualty. And tragedy in the midst of a war. And that's what we are. We're in the midst of a war. And so we got to remember it's a process in which we'll come to an end. And at that end, those who can say those three little words, I trust Jesus, will be transformed into a glorious, uh, immortal being and will rule over all creation with Jesus. And it's here and not yet. It's already... But not yet. Well, Nick, that does it for Second Timothy chapter 4. Uh, we will pick up with our next book next week, which is a mystery. We don't know yet. That's right. But on the next mysterious episode of Swordplay, we hope you'll join us. But until then, if you have any questions, send it to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com.
1: Go into the iTunes store, go into the Google Play store, search Swordplay, and you'll find the podcast there In both of those places. Download all the episodes to your particular iDevice and uh, leave a review. Let us know what you think and help us get the word out about it.
0: Well, we thank you for tuning in to another episode of Swordplay.